This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 11, Nashville, the film. Talking with Sean Chang of the Hill Place movie and TV blog. In today's episode, we're going to showcase Robert Altman's 1975 drama about the intersection of numerous people's lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And with us to talk about the film is Sean Chang. Hi, Sean, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Not at all. Sean, I know that Nashville is one of your favorite movies, and I watched it over the weekend, but I had a few questions. Well, I, I want to preface it by saying it's not one of my favorite films. It's actually my, my, probably my very favorite film of all time. You had asked me a while back to give you a list of recommended films to check out. Right. And I put, Na- I put Nashville on the list, but I didn't know that you had already checked it out and you're planning to watch it this weekend because if you had told me that you had you know, gotten a copy of it and you were going to watch it, I would have, I think I would have prepped you for it because I think telling somebody that they should go see Nashville and not basically giving them a context, a sense of what the movie's about, I think is a pretty dangerous prospect because people can have, can have extreme reactions to the movie. But go ahead. You're absolutely right because when I first started watching it, At first, I thought it was a documentary. There seemed to be a lot of storylines going on, seemed to be Mm -hmm. somewhat complex. I I enjoyed the music. I mean, the music is terrific. How could you how could you do a film about Nashville and not enjoy the music and the songs? Yeah. So at first, I thought it was a documentary. So give us it. Was this Robert? Is this typical of uh, of Altman's style? Oh, very typical. I, I think I think one might say Nashville is the quintessential Robert Altman movie. His movies always have large ensemble casts, uh, multiple storylines that crisscross. There's a lot of what they called overlapping dialogue, where people are talking at the same time. Oftentimes, people uh, people will say about his movies that when they watched it uh, multiple times, they go, "Oh, okay, I, I understand what that person was saying now." So I would say it's 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 like I said, it's the quintessential Robert Altman film, and it was probably the high point of his career. I mean, he he had done Mash before that, which was nominated for Best Picture, and he was nominated for Best Director at the uh, 1970 Academy Awards, and then he did a, a revisionist western the next year with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie called McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is an excellent film. And he did other films, Thieves Like Us, California Split, that won him critical acclaim. Um, and Nashville, when it came up in 1975, really by that point, you know, his career was on the rise. And that that movie basically, you know, at that time, and I think people have kind of forgotten it by this point, really, it, it got incredible rave reviews uh, when it came out. It also at the same time generated a lot of controversy from critics that were trying to interpret it one way or the other. And some people were offended by what they felt was the underlying theme or message of the movie and the country music industry of Nashville themselves um, reportedly were very offended by the movie and, and several country stars didn't like it. it these days, you know, I, I, my understanding is, is that many younger uh, country music artists of that uh, of, of the country music industry have uh, come to embrace that movie. It's, it's a movie that I think, uh, what's the word for it? You really have to bring your own sensibilities, your own personal perspectives and experience to it because there's no one way of seeing that film. Everybody pretty much has, everybody I've ever talked to has had pretty uh, varying reactions 
reactions to Nashville. Well, you know, it's interesting. I lived through that era. Mm -hmm. I remember 1974, 75, and there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a political theme going on in the film. Mm -hmm. There, yeah. of course, there's the the very central music theme going on in mm -hmm. the film. There's also the issue of the entertainment industry when you pull back the curtain on the entertainment industry, whether it's Nashville or Hollywood or wherever, you know, there are some seamy sides to the entertainment industry. So that was dealt with. But what would you say was the, as you said, I mean, there, there are a number of storylines here that are that overlap and intersect. Is there one unifying theme to this film, Sean, that, or is there not? I would say there probably is not one unifying theme. If, look, I'm going to tell you something. I first saw this movie when I was around 14 or 15 years old, more than 30, more than 30 years ago, and I still haven't completely grasped what the movie's about, and I still couldn't really <laughs> completely. I know you're laughing at me, and and I know that sounds completely bizarre for me to say this, but and to say that it's and to also say that it's my favorite movie, but I I couldn't begin to tell you why it's my favorite movie because. It defies everything that I would define as being a great movie. Normally, I would say a great movie, you know, has a really well-structured, skillful script, directing that is is very sharp and you know very precise, cinematography that's beautiful. And I'm not saying that the movie is sloppily made. It's not sloppily made. It's very skillfully made, uh, but it has a very loose quality to yes, it. Yes, but the, but but the loose quality, I think, you know, there, there's a there's a method to the madness in it, and I think there is um, there is an end game to the whole thing. I think the movie, it's I mean, it's not. I wouldn't say it's the overall theme, but I think it's basically a slice of life in terms of American culture in the mid 70s coming at, coming after as the country was emerging from being in the Vietnam War, emerging from Watergate, the political assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy and, and also the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so I think it was basically an examination of where, where America was at the time. I mean, some people, if I'm not mistaken, I think George Will, the political commentator, really hated the film and hated, thought that was a very cynical outlook on America at the time. I haven't read his piece in, in years, so if I've misinterpreted or misrepresented it, you know, Mr. Will, please forgive me if I've misinterpreted <laughs> what he wrote. You know, some people think it's a put down of Nashville and of, of, of the, you know, the American the South. South. Yes. I, I, I can sort of agree with that up to a point. I do think there is that certain degree. I think there is a level, something that I don't normally like in a movie, a level of criticism and some people might say condescension of it and at the same time i also think there is a level of compassion and sympathy for these characters also so i think that's the reason why as much as i love it and it's my favorite movie you know even i have struggles and issues with it because i don't like necessarily movies that um condescending in terms of when they portray a certain demographic but i think overall even though there is some element of it i think overall at the end of the day the movie i think it overall does play fair by showing different sides to these characters some characters that like like haven hamilton the country music star that henry gibson plays uh -huh. who's, who's based on i think um you know roy acuff and and, and hank snow and you know he's kind of an obsequious self-aggrandizing individual and a little bit a little bit you know power hungry when when michael murphy who plays the uh, the political advanced man for the third party political candidate yes. um tries to get haven hamilton to come to the political rally at the end by saying oh how philip walker 
might support you becoming governor and it interests in the Haven Hamilton character to attend that political rally. But at that political rally, something violent and horrible happens, but he's the one that calms the crowd down. He's the one that basically manages to keep his wits about him and set aside his own injuries when something horrible happens at the end and tries to keep everything together. So I, I that's that's kind of what I'm trying to say is that they're not, they're painted in broad strokes, but, but I think they're nuanced. Lily Tomlin was she was in it and yes, yes. but but of the other the other actors and actresses in the film yeah. were not big marquee names you know solid yeoman actors and actresses but not big marquee names was that typical of of Altman or was that something was was that something new in Nashville for him Oh, no. His movies was always a mix of established actors with a name value, some newcomers, character actors that were had solid careers, even if mm-hmm. they weren't people that could open that, that could open a movie. So it was a mix of things. I think I need to put into context that in 1975, when that movie came out, even if some of those names you know, are not considered box office sensations in the long run, in 1975, a lot of those people were you know, quite well known. Some, a couple of people that come to mind is Karen Black who plays the country singer uh, Connie White. She was at the peak of her film stardom at the time. And I think in an interview, um, even Robert Altman said that at that time, she was the biggest star in the cast because she had done Easy Rider and five easy pieces several years earlier. And during the early half of the 70s, she was just making one major studio film after another okay. and so and then there's barbara harris who's also in the film and barbara harris was a tony-winning broadway star who'd been oscar nominated and had done multiple films um, and she plays albuquerque who's probably the most sympathetic in my opinion character in the movie because she's this runaway farmer's wife who abandons her husband in the middle yes. of a traffic jam in the freeway because <laughs> she's going to pursue her dream of becoming a country music star and when i say she's the most positive character to be really quite honest to the uninitiated a lot of the characters in the movie might be considered rather unsympathetic oh speaking so- of unsympathetic that sure. the the bbc reporter who was she and she kept pushing her way into all sorts of scenes and ultimately getting getting shuttled out of she she was always trying to grab the the spotlight who was she Oh, that, that's uh, that's uh, Geraldine Chaplin. Geraldine Chaplin, who's the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, and, uh-huh. and Geraldine Chaplin years earlier had done Dr. Zhivago. And that's the, another example of someone I'm talking about who, you know, by that point had already had a rather accomplished film career, yes. if, even if not a big star. And, and she plays Opal from the BBC, who's supposedly in town to make a documentary about Nashville. Yes. And she really, I mean, I, I don't know what you thought of her, but I, I, I mean, some people really think of her as kind of humorous. Other people think yes. that she's completely oblivious and tone deaf in terms of her interactions with the various characters. But re- referring back to the Barbara Harris character, if you ever watch Nashville, um, and the list, if the listeners of this podcast, she's the one who is you know, will not let anything get her down. She knows what she's trying to do. She's trying to become a star. And yet she's a realist about everything. She says uh, to another guy when they're walking alongside the road, uh, they're about, I think they're they're in the process of trying to hitchhike or something. But she basically said that if she doesn't make it, she'll, you know, sell trucks. So she's got a game plan. She has a game plan. And that's why I think she's, in my opinion, she's she's like the most, the one that has her act together. But anyway, I cut you off. No, how many times have you seen the movie? Oh, do you remember when I said a couple of months ago that I'd seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood fifty-two times? Right. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or some such or some such number. All right, take that 
and then multiply it like several more times. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, if, if I've, if, if I've seen once upon a time in Hollywood 52 times and it's yes. like a three year old movie and Nashville, I first saw in the late eighties, you can imagine the number of times I've seen it you know, through the years. And, and I'll, I'll say that as a kid, Growing up, I mean, I would watch it. My brother just got sick of hearing you know, it, it in the background, and my whole family got sick of me playing the the soundtrack album, which was on L. I found the long play LP record and would play it. And my father, who's a Chinese opera musician, sarcastically said, "I've heard that uh, all those songs so many times. I can I can play that on my Chinese opera instrument by now." So <laughs> I, I, I I mean, I, but that's not I heard the note. No, I've seen it many times. I, I think it's a very good movie. I mean, I've seen people say. I think it's a terrible movie. I think it's horrible. It's awful. Okay, I grant them that. And I can sort of see what they're saying. Um, but I think it's a reflection of different tastes, different perspectives. And so, I, I, like I said, I think it's a great movie. The music. I mean, you think mm-hmm. of Nashville, you think of country music. And of course, yeah, country yeah, yeah. music back then, uh, in the 1970s, one of the characters refers to country music as redneck music. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember going, you know, just remembering back to 1975, uh, country music wasn't the mainstream kind of music that it is today. And again, one of the characters refers to it as uh, redneck music. Now you said earlier that the Nashville industry, the Nashville song industry, entertainment industry didn't like the film. What didn't they like about the film? Oh, I, I, it's hard to say there was a, there was a um, premiere of the movie several months after opening LA and New York. And it, when it finally premiered in Nashville, they had like a, my understanding a big rep, red carpet premiere and several several established country music stars like Lynn Anderson showed up that night or Connie Smith. And my understanding is, is that when they came out of it, they, they just, you know, they didn't care for it. Either it was Lynn Anderson or Connie Smith. I think it was Connie Smith that said like that she didn't like it and that if they wanted to really get to understand the real country music industry, then they needed to get someone like her to participate. I respect that. I can totally respect that, you know, because because here's a bunch of outsiders from L.A. and New York coming in and a lot of the actors in the film. And this is if anyone is a Robert Altman fan, is a Nashville fan, I'm repeating what they already know. So forgive me. But for the uninitiated, Altman had the cast sing their own songs. The the music was recorded live in front of, you know, real audiences at the Grand Ole Opry or in nightclubs or places like that. So if if mistakes were made, it was all kept in. So it was not recorded. it was not like uh, recorded in a, in a studio and then lip synced where, you know, it, it was all mixed beautifully. It was like, you know, it, so there was a certain rawness to the music yes. that mm-hmm. I rather like. And, and he had them write their own songs. I mean, you know, um, Karen Black wrote all her songs. And, and I, I told it to you in advance, but, you know, at, at college parties, in high school and college parties, I would sing songs from Nashville, <laughs> you know, and I would sing one of Karen Black's songs in um, called Memphis. And if I run into someone from, the college days, yes. they might ask me to sing the first verse just for old time's sake. Yes. And I'll just go, and this is decades later. I'm like, really? Oh, 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 <laughs> you want me to sing it again? Oh, okay, sure. You know, so, but, but, but anyway, but the thing is, is that, so that I think, I think, I think, I think it may have been a little bit of discomfort seeing people that were not musical professionals uh, being passed off as, yes. as, as, the, as the cream of the crop in country music. And I can understand uh, that discomfort and I can respect that. There's another person who was a, a singer in the film, Ronnie Blakely, who played Barbara Jean, this tragic country singer who's based superficially on Loretta Lynn. That particular actress is Robbie Blakely, and she was, uh, people assume that she was a country artist. She wasn't. She was more like a Joan Baez type 
folk singer with a little with a slight country edge to her she was she'd not acted before but her music was brought to the attention of robert altman who was considering you know uh, utilizing some of her songs for the film and the story that and is now part of the folklore of nashville is that he was trying to hire susan onspock who was also like karen black an, uh, an early 70s leading lady in films who had done films like five easy pieces where she co-starred with karen black and films like bloom and love but it didn't work out with negotiations with Susan Onspock, so he cast Ronnie Blakely, and Ronnie Blakely and, and Lily Tomlin both were nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars that year. So, and then, and then of course, I can't, I'd be very remiss to leave out Keith Carradine. Yes. Keith Carradine. Keith Carradine plays a uh, womanizing rock singer named Tom Frank, and he's part of a rock trio, Tom Bill and Mary, or Bill Mary and Tom, depending on which characters you hear. And it's a subtlety I, I'd never picked up on until years later so that some people will say to Tom, "Oh, you're part of Tom Bill and Mary," but the but the but Alan Nichols who plays Bill, you know, he refers to the band he calls it Bill Mary and Tom, and I, it's something I didn't realize until years later that subtle subtly one character puts his name first, you know, <laughs> in terms of what, what the name of the band. It's 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 a, so there's a little subtle humor there, and Mary is played by an actress that I interviewed for my blog who has remained a friend uh, named Christina Raines. Oh, yes. And Christina, yeah, and Christina Raines has, has a really great uh, musical solo singing a song called Since You've Gone. And on my blog, Hill Place, if you Google it, there's a lengthy interview with Christina Raines uh, conducted years, years ago where um, we talked about the making of Nashville in depth. And I'm quite proud of that interview. So if you guys are listening to this, uh, listeners, you can check it out because when actors from Nashville talk about their experience with the movie usually they talk about it subjectively from their own point of view and they don't really talk about uh, the other participants the other 23 actors because it's a cast of 24 main characters in the movie I, I i actually got her to talk about all yes of course she talks about it from her subjective viewpoint but she tries to give an overall perspective in terms of the making of the movie not just her part or her scenes but the overall experience for everybody and she i got her to talk about uh, her memories of the other 23 people in, in the cast with her and also her memories of Robert Altman, but also significantly Joan Tewksbury, who is the screenwriter of the film, who devised the storyline. And and the thing about thing I want to circle back with with um, Keith Carradine is he composed a song called "I'm Easy" for and, and which was performed in the movie, and it won the Best Song Oscar that uh, that year for at the Academy Awards. It's the one Oscar the film got. So I mean, there's good there's good music in in the movie. There's there's a lot of good music music in the movie. Now, as as you said, there are 24 main characters in mm-hmm. the film. It's you called mm-hmm. it an you uh, called it an ensemble film. Mm-hmm. Yes, an ensemble film. Number one, number two. Yeah. It runs for two hours and forty minutes. So yeah, yeah, it's a lengthy film. Of course, yeah. there are twenty four main characters. It's all situated in Nashville. What was Altman's inspiration for trying to focus on Nashville? He's a northerner. He's not a southerner. I don't think he was a, a country western aficionado or anything like that what was his inspiration what was his what was his curiosity about nashville to draw him in because as i said back in the 1970s country music had not yet gone mainstream so any thoughts Oh, uh, the the back the background w- was that United Artists, with whom he had been making several films, had a, a script that remains unproduced. It, it, would, it would have been a Tom Jones vehicle, and it would have been set in Nashville. But he didn't care for that script. He was offered that the chance to direct it, but he was still intrigued by the idea of making a film set in Nashville. So uh, one of his associates was the aforementioned screenwriter Joan Tewksbury, and he sent her on a, a trip to Nashville. The first 
trip that she took apparently was one of those organized PR trips where uh-huh. someone basically escorted her around, took her to various different museums and sites and whatever, but she didn't get a sense of the real city. So she came back on her own and she just wandered through the city. And a lot of the vignettes that are, are dramatized in the movie are extensions of things that she experienced in Nashville during that second trip. And, and Christina Raines made it really clear to me, as brilliant as Robert Altman is, uh-huh. um, and, and a lot of, of a lot of print has been written about the fact that he allowed a lot of improvisation in the scripts so that what happened was that so many people were talking about the improvisation, people added things to scenes, that it really allowed uh, Joan Sukesbury's contribution to be kind of overlooked. She was not nominated for Best Screenplay Oscar that year. I think it's because everyone just assumed the movie was improvised when, in fact, Christina Raines made it really clear that Yes, actors contributed to their scenes and to their characters, but Joan Tewksbury was there to to you know kind of talk to the actors. In some instances, my understanding is that she would talk to the actors and then basically help help write out the ideas for you know some of the scenes, so that you know even though there was improvisation, she was a part of every step of the process. So I do want to take the time to to pay tribute to Tewksbury's contribution to that film because I think without that blueprint, you know, of what she devised and the overall story arc, you know, I I don't think on its own the movie would have made it just on the premise of oh we're going to take 24 actors and we're going to let them run wild in Nashville, <laughs> right, we're going to photograph them. I mean I mean it, 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 it needed basically a strong story behind it, and mm-hmm. Nashville does have it. And and, you know, and going back to the country music industry I'll, I'll say this in defense of the soundtrack album because i love that soundtrack album i think the songs are great and like i said i've, I've sung those songs at parties and if and if you are friends from a college that had to endure me singing i thank you for your patience with me but the thing is is that the country music that we hear now the shania twains this kind of homogenized pop kind of music without any of that kind of flavor you know of of, um, of the fiddle or the steel guitar I, I don't think that's country music anymore so I think the criticism that Nashville received at the time for not being real country music I mean nowadays you listen to it and I think it, it, it more reflects a genuine country flavor in my opinion than than what's called than what passes for real country music now so I would I would say that in defense of the movie like I said it's not for everybody for I mean the, the San Francisco experience listeners are very erudite people and I'm sure many of them <laughs> thank you Sean Thank you. Well, well they, they oh, are. are. They're actually. You laughing? They are. I'm, I'm not. No, they abs- absolutely they are. And, and, You're and, laughing. And, okay. And, and very, very demanding, discerning, very discerning listeners. Yes. And yes. And the reason I say that is, is that I'm sure many of them are listening to this and they've probably seen Nashville and they probably um, have their own perceptions of it. They're probably listening to me saying, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Or they'll listen to something I say, but oh, no, 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 he's got it totally wrong. And that's totally fine. I think the thing that's great about Nashville, and I think Tewksbury, the screenwriter, said that her intention was, was that she wanted to make it a movie that had a pretty open point of view so that even if you thought the movie was wrong, that your perspective is still a valid perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the theme about it. I, I you know, I'm not going to, I just going to sound terribly pretentious and heavy handed, but, but hopefully, you know, please bear with me. When you grow up watching movies, movies it's usually one or two main characters right. and it pretty much presents this notion in life that you're the main character in your life and etc cetera, etc cetera. but seeing nashville at age 14 or 15 or however old i was really allowed me to see that you know we're just a cog in, in this you know in this greater wheel of life you know called you know the universe and the planet earth or whatever call whatever have you so hopefully it keeps me 
hopefully somewhat, you know, humble, recognizing, you know, everyone's place in the world and everyone's validity in the world. So I think that's what I got out of Nashville. So if you wanted to ask, like, what I learned the most, I think that's the case. We're all main characters in our own lives, just like the characters of Nashville are all main characters in their lives. There's not one principal person that takes precedent over everyone else. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing I got from that movie. Uh, and then I also think cinematically, it, it established a, a style of filmmaking. I mean, there were always ensembles mm. of movies like Grand Hotel prior to that, or the year before, The Towering Inferno was a big ensemble yes. movie. But ultimately, mm-hmm. in contrast, The Towering Inferno, let's break it down to brass tacks. The main character is still Paul Newman or Steve McQueen. Right. But in Nashville, it was unique that it wasn't like that. In, in the decades since Nashville, uh, Steven Soderbergh did a film called Traffic, which is all about the, the United States in you know, a war against drugs. And it had a huge ensemble cast of characters, and he called it his, his own Nashville. There's this British comedy that people love watching at Christmas time called Love Actually, all about people's romantic lives in London. And that pretty yeah. much is a Nashville type movie and uh, Altman himself did multiple movies through the years that had big ensemble casts and, and about 25 years later he did a film called Shortcuts not not 25 years later excuse me 18 years later 18 years later in 1993 and Shortcuts was basically a story of 22 characters in the city of Los Angeles spread over, spread over five days so that is probably the closest he came to, to, to trying to duplicate the success of Nashville. Now Sean you referenced the music and of course when mm-hmm. we talk about Nashville we of course, we always think of the music. And what was yeah. your favorite song? Oh, it's the Karen Black song, Memphis. Memphis. What, yeah. do, do you want to? Do you want to give us a couple no, of bars? No, 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 no. Thank you for the offer, but I'm not going to subject. I, thank you for the offer, but I am not going to subject the San Francisco experience <laughs> listeners to uh, my singing, even if I think it's pretty decent. If I do say so myself. But, well, but, 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 but I, I the reason, the well, offer. the reason I invited you to do so, I think you've got a great voice, so I thought you'd you'd enjoy sharing a, a bar or two of uh, Memphis. Uh, yeah. Well, well, thanks. But thanks. Yeah, thanks. But, you know, but then, but look, I, I think I think the listeners probably think that pretty self-indulgent person already. So let's not let, let's not confirm it conclusively for them. But I, like I said, there's a lot of great characters in the movie. And there's a couple more people I just really want to mention. Michael Murphy, who is one of the great character actors of 70s cinema, plays uh, John Triplett. And I, the, the thing that I've forgotten to mention and the key thing is, is that it's set in Nashville during one week during a presidential primary taking place in right. Tennessee. This third party political candidate named Hal Philip Walker is campaigning and he's been bas- uh, surprising people by winning several earlier primaries and his uh, political PR guy played by uh, uh, Michael Murphy's character, John Triplett. He's trying to organize a political rally at the Parthenon, which is um, the finale of the movie. And he's trying to organize all these music singing stars to participate at, at that rally. And so I guess if, if you had to find like one connective thread that's sort of the connective thread through the movie, but a lot of a lot of storylines and characters don't crisscross with him directly. So it's so it's when I say it's like you know it might be the connective thread. That's it. But he really gives a great performance. It's a very subtle performance. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a performance where sometimes like there's a scene where uh, there's a political fundraiser 
and uh, a girl has been uh, told that she's there, being hired there to to be a singer, but it turns out she's really been hired there to to strip for the audience. <laughs> to be a stripper. And, well, I mean, it's not funny. It's really a horrible it, scene. It is. But, it, it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, but... it, it is a horrible scene. But the thing is that he tells her, you know, that if you uh that if you, that if you strip for the audience, I'll, you'll get the chance to sing at the Parthenon tomorrow with Barbara Jean. And this character, Sulin Gay, played by Gwen Wells, she really is. I think she's probably one of the more tragic characters in the movie hmm. and tragic in the sense of um, not just the fact that she you know, ends up uh, taking her clothes off uh, in front of this crowd, but the fact that she is a horrible singer. Yes. She really, tr I mean, she truly is a horrible singer. And I think I, I, like friends of mine, we've talked about the movie and I think the brilliance of her performance is, is that to sing really bad like that was in itself quite a skill. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she and she's so tone deaf. Yes. She is so tone deaf, uh, both, you know, in terms of recognizing her singing ability, but also tone deaf in terms of recognizing whether she really has a chance of making it. And she genuinely believes she's going to be a star. And it's in contrast to the Barbara Harris character who abandoned her husband is running away from him and she's going to be a star but the barbara harris character is a realist she's gonna you know she's got a game plan if she doesn't make it and she throughout the movie never lets anybody victimize her the way this character is victimized and the barbara harris character she's the winner in the end of the movie at, at the very end of the movie something tragic happens yes. and sort, sort of like that musical 42nd street it's it's like that kind of broadway cliche this unknown is finally given a chance to to, to shine. potentially yeah. to shine mm -hmm. and and the barbara harris who is a accomplished musical theater star from broadway she sings a song at the end of the film called it don't worry me and she's brilliant at, at, at performing that song and the reason why that performance uh, jim is so brilliant is is that she's got a really excellent speaking voice but it, there's a rawness to her speaking voice so mm -hmm. if there's not this cliche if she takes the mic and she sings beautifully and everything's at perfect pitch no no there, sometimes she's a little bit out of breath but but she's able to s deliver that song and sell that song and show that she's got an innate, an innate talent that uh, is waiting to be uh, discovered. So so there's a lot of great characters in in, mm -hmm. in the movie Nashville. Like I said, I, I, I love that movie. Um, I love that movie. And in 88, Altman almost did a sequel to Nashville that didn't come together. And um, and some people say it's just as well. It wouldn't it, We wouldn't want to see it ruined. But even if it wasn't as good a film as the first Nashville, I still wish it got made. I think the notion of seeing most of those characters come back together and finding out where they, what happened to them more than a decade later. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that, that would have been a rewarding experience for moviegoers either way. Well, Sean, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our, uh, for our listeners and also perhaps preview our upcoming second episode this week for our listeners? Oh, well, later this week, uh, because I didn't do a podcast with you, Jim, in April, you've asked me to make up for it by doing two this week. And so I... <laughs> So, so I'm making up for, you know, um, supposedly, I guess some, some people asked where the, you know, was I coming back to the show? And if that's true, I thank them. We're doing, uh, we're going to have a discussion later this week about Francois Truffaut's Oscar-winning comedy, uh, Day for Night, which is about the making of a movie in France. And it stars Jacqueline Bissett. And it's, a, it's a great movie. And it's also a movie that was made around the same time as Nashville. It, it, it actually was made in 1973. It's about the making of a movie in France. And they both have large ensemble cast. They're both about 
professionals working in the, in the entertainment industry. So there's a common theme. So we're going to talk about that later. The other thing I just simply want to say is you had me on to talk about the Oscars recently. And I basically said that I really am not a fan of a lot of current, current cinema. I, I, I mean, there's good things still made. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sure. one of those people that goes, oh, everything old is great. Well, not everything old is great. I mean, I, I, I think there's still good movies, movies being made, but I think a lot of movies that are particularly Oscar nominated or considered like uh, Power of the Dog yes. are just, anyway, I mean, I, I, won't, I won't even dignify Power of the Dog by speaking of it in the same light as, <laughs> as, truly, as truly great films as Day for Night or Nashville. But I think the reason I'm bringing it up is that Nashville and Day for Night they came from an era that, and I, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm only getting to it now. In the 70s, it, it was considered a really a, a filmmaking renaissance called the New Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Filmmakers that were innovative and creative were making movies like Francis Coppola made Godfather 1 and 2. I mentioned Five Easy Pieces. Uh, Roman Polanski did Chinatown. And the thing about it is that these were commercial Hollywood movies from major studios, and these were thoughtfully made movies yes. that were intelligently done. And I think the problem, like I said before on this podcast, is that a lot of movies that are being uh, made now that are of, of a serious nature are not coming from the major studios. They're coming from independent independent companies, independent filmmakers. And I don't think entertaining the audience is their priority. I think being didactic and having a message is the thing. Uh, the thing about Nashville that I'll conclude with is that there is a political theme to it, but it's not clear what the political theme is. I mean, it's not clear what Altman is saying about politics. And I'm not saying that that's a weakness. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's just that Altman's presenting a, a slice of life in America at a period of time when a lot of stuff is happening in the news, and he's not beating you over the head with a single message or theme. He's leaving it open for you to basically draw your own conclusion about that movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the value of, of a great filmmaker like Altman. It's like he's giving you a, a, enough to work with, to appreciate and to be entertained by, but he's also basically trusting that you're intelligent enough to draw your own conclusion. Well, Sean, as always, great insights. Nashville is a long and complex film, but well worth watching. And based on today's conversation, I'm going to go back and watch it a second time. I may not get to the the dozens of times that you've watched it, but I'm definitely going to go back and watch it a second time. <laughs> well, when you watch it again and you get to the song Memphis by Karen Black, you I'll call, call you. Me. I'll call you. You can sing it for I'll me. Sing, I'll sing it to you on the phone. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Yeah. But I'm not, but I'm not going to do it for the, for the, for, for the audience. Because, uh, yeah. Because I'm not going to subject it, subject them to it because, you know, because yeah, that, that would be too much. Well, Sean, as always, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to doing a reprise later this week on Thursday when we talk about Day for Night, La Nuit Américaine mm-hmm. by François Truffaut. And yes. once again, thank you for uh, thank you for appearing. Thank you for giving us a, a terrific and in-depth view of this, of this great film by Robert Altman. And look forward to our session coming up on Thursday. Well, like I said, thank you again, and thank you for not being mad at me, because like I said, when I got your message that evening, your text saying, I watched Nashville, <laughs> I went, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's wrong. I, I, better, I, better, I better apologize. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you, everybody. Okay, Sean. And for my listeners, as we celebrate our second anniversary, thanks again for your ongoing support. Today marks our 276th episode. The San Francisco Experience is featured on 19 podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, among many others, with listeners in 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience and your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.